0: Well, good morning. We are really excited for Tony and Angela. And so we've been getting to meet with Tony and talk to him about where he's going and what they'll be doing. And it is so exciting to have someone right here in town at our college reaching people for the gospel. And so we want to, as a church, come beside him. And Angela, as they raise support, we definitely want them on campus next fall. And so if you're able to talk to the Beards about potential support, please do so. This is, this is impacting our community. And so, um, Tony and Angela, we're excited for you. Um, and we can't wait to see what God does. Um, we're in 1 Peter this morning, so if you have a Bible, and you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 through 25. I've been reading an autobi- autobiography this week uh, by, about Elizabeth Elliot. It's a really humbling, challenging story of Elizabeth Elliot. Maybe you know her story, or you probably already know her story. I think I've talked about her before. Her and her husband, Jim, were missionaries in the 1950s in Ecuador, um, and they were hoping and praying to reach a jungle people group, the Aka Indians, unreached, untouched. And uh, their story very famously, Jim and his four friends were delivering uh, presents or supplies to this, to this tribe via uh, airplane and finally felt like it was now time to go and to try to meet these people face to face while Elizabeth and the other wives waited at the home base. And so... Uh, they went to this tribe, they started to approach them and talk to them, and eventually that day, I think it was January 3rd, uh, the Indians speared them to death and really changed the landscape of missions as we know it. Uh, but this story that I've been reading about is about Elizabeth Elliot. And what makes it a really fascinating story for me is that this is all written from her personal journals. Uh, And so you really see her full life. You see her life before she met Jim, uh, while she was dating Jim, and then once they got married. And it's a really humbling story in that you see this young lady wanting to follow Jesus even in difficulty. She was a translator before she met Jim, or before she was married to Jim. Um, And the challenges of life and kind of time and time again through her journals, you can kind of see uh, through the daily trials, here was a lady who was resilient and bold and godly and not perfect. And so it's just something about reading someone's journals that kind of cause you to say, man, what, what is she? Well, look what she's doing with her life. And it made me think, what would my story look like? What would my autobiography look like? If someone made a movie out of mine, that's a really not exciting movie, but out of my life and my journals, what would it communicate? Just the daily life. Because this is what it is with Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth, it's day in, day out. Here's the task that she did. This is how she carried herself. These are her mistakes. These are her successes. And so what would your life look like? What would your story, what would your autobiography, if it was just the last two weeks, and someone was to capture how you carried your life, what you did and what you said and where you went, what would that story tell? And what we're gonna see in First Peter is that Peter's gonna talk about this, that your conduct and what you do in your life, it really matters. 12 times that word conduct, we see it in the New Testament. And here in First Peter, starting in verse 12, 12, going through the rest of the book, Peter's gonna use it eight of the 12 times in the New Testament, meaning Peter cares about your conduct. And so we've talked about the cornerstone, about who you are in Jesus. When you are standing on the cornerstone of Jesus, what Peter's now saying is it, it impacts how you conduct and live and walk through your life. And we've talked about fires. The, the challenges and the trials and the persecution of life, what Peter is saying is what you do in the midst of challenges, it is significant. And so that's what we want to see today. How might we conduct our live, lives in a way that is worthy of the cornerstone that we stand upon? So let's read 1 Peter 2, 12 through 25, and then we'll pray. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray, Father, I mean, what a passage. What an important passage. And God, I pray that this morning that you would speak to the way that we conduct our lives. Because this is important. This is, this is monumental for the church and for the gospel. And so, God, I pray that as we study and think about conduct and how we live and what we do with our lives, God, I pray for myself and for everyone who's listening that you would speak and you would encourage and you would convict and lead us, that we would be a church, that we would be individuals that don't just say something about you, but we would be a church and individuals that conduct ourselves in a way that lines up with what we say. And so, God, we ask that you help us as we think and study and interpret and apply these passages. Give us insight. Give us the courage to hear it and to do something about it. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for this text. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. So I kind of was outlining the passage, really the heart of the passage is conduct. What are you doing in light of all that you are in Christ? And so the outline kind of breaks down with these three questions. Why is conduct important? Verse 12. What particular conduct is important? Verses 13 through 20. And then who is our conductor? Verses 12. 21 through 25. But first, why is our conduct important? Why are we talking about this? What is, why is this important? And I think verse 12 is really the turning point in this letter in 1 Peter. From here, from this verse on, Peter is gonna pound this drum that what you do really makes a difference. And so verse 12, one more time. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, it is an assumed reality in this passage, in this one verse, that there are people speaking evil against these followers of Jesus. This is assumed to happen. It's not if they speak against you, it's when you follow Jesus. The world and the culture around you is going to look at what you do and they're going to look at what you value. And instead of saying that is a good and righteous way to live, they're going to look at you and say, You are evil. And when someone thinks you're evil or they label you as evil, that means you're going to be accused. That means you're going to be canceled. That means you're going to be misrepresented. You're going to be wrongly labeled. You're going to be silenced, and you're going to be shunned. And this was happening in this culture, in 1 Peter. It's happening in our culture today. We understand what it's like to be thought of as something that we don't think we are as followers of Jesus. Okay, so what does Peter tell them to do in light of something that I think we can at least connect with? What does he tell them to do in light of the fact that they are being they are being labeled as evil. He tells them, keep your conduct honorable. To the Gentiles, so that's, that's the world. That's all the people that are labeling you. He's saying, honor the person that is mislabeling you. I mean, that word honor means to give that person who doesn't understand you, to, to give that person dignity. And to respect that person and to show kindness to that person. And in Romans, it talks about showing your, your fellow brother's honor. And in the next phrase there in Romans 14, it says, to love your brother. As if to say, one way you honor someone is that you love them. And so I think that fits here in 1 Peter. The person who is misaccusing you, you are to honor them to love them, to show them kindness. The the second phrase there in verse 12 gives us, kind of repeats this idea of honoring, but with a different way of saying it, that they may see your good deeds. So people are accusing you. What do you do? You give them good deeds. You respect and honor them. And then look at the, really the important phrase. What is the result, verse 12, that same verse 12, so that. So this is is answering the question, well, why does it matter that we do this? Like Peter, why are we talking about this? He tells them, so that if you do this, this is what's going to happen. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What you do. Your conduct with people who are surrounding you and are evil, they're saying you're doing evil things, what you do in response to them, hear this, has the potential to change their eternal destiny. That's what Peter says, that they're calling you evil and you're loving them and honoring them and respecting them and doing good deeds for them. And guess what? It changes how they view the God that you worship. Because when God comes to visit, when God comes for judgment on the second coming, that instead of looking at God is evil, what do they do? They glorify God on the day of visitation. That means something changes. They recognize who God is. They recognize what he is owed. And so by grace they are saved to the point that they can now look to God and instead of calling him evil, they can worship him for who he is. And so this is important. Our conduct matters. It has the potential to change someone's eternal destiny. And it's not just people who look at us that are calling us evil. Jesus kind of broadens this idea. In Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, The famous light and salt passage, verse 16, in the same way Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is heaven. It's just a general principle that people can see your good works, can see your good deeds and how you live your life, and it can change how they view the Father that you are doing the good works for. We see this principle all the time. I had two men, two different men that I talked to the last couple of weeks that kind of proved the inverse of this. Both of them said, I met some lousy Christians, called themselves followers of Jesus. They, they looked sharp and polished on Sunday, but they treated me awful. And, and I said for a time in my life, if, that's, if that is what it looks like to follow Jesus, they both said, I want nothing to do with it. And we see this, the the opposite of that with our own kids. I mean, we recognize that our conduct matters for other people as they come to know Jesus. We've seen this with children for the longest time. You ask them, what's the most faith, what's made the most faith forming impact on the life of children? Okay, it's not going to Christian schools. It's not having Christian friends. It's not going to youth group. It's not listening to Christian music. It's not having Christian friends. All those things are good things. But what we see from kids who are following Jesus today, what they say was the most faith-forming aspect of their lives. You know what they say? My mom and dad really loved Jesus. Their conduct matched with their behavior on Sundays. My dad loved my mom. My dad read his Bible. My dad, when he messed up, he'd get down on his knee and he'd say, will you forgive me? My dad shared Jesus with people. My mom and dad were generous. And this has impact. What you do, we see this, what you do impacts the people around you and it can impact them eternally. And that's what Peter, that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying, your conduct is important, and so we better start talking about this. What particular conduct is important? So general statement, he's saying, hey, all conduct is important, but now for the next chapter and a half, he's going to talk about one particular, specific conduct in verse 13 through 20. And I think it's pretty surprising. I mean, it's surprising if if we hadn't already read the verse... And I was going to tell you that Peter's going to kind of hone in on one aspect of what you do with your life as having an impact on the people around you. If we were to all brainstorm what we would just guess that would be, it probably wouldn't be what he talks about. Maybe evangelism or generosity or kindness or loving our neighbor, but that's not at all what Peter focuses on. Instead, in verse 13 through 20 and really beyond, he's going to focus on the good conduct of submitting in serving and respecting and honoring those in authority. And so let's I'll kind of show you kind of broadly this theme verse 13 be subject to the lord's sake for to every human institution verse 16 you're living as servants of god verse 17 honor everyone honor the emperor Verse 18 again, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Then we won't be on the screen, but next week we'll talk about 3 1 and 3 7. Wives be subject to your husbands. Husbands honor your wife. It's this theme that Peter is going to continue to talk about submitting to the authority, honoring the authority, respecting the authority, and serving. As a citizen, which we're talking about now, as a, as, a, as a slave, which, by the way, this isn't slavery as, as you might think of it with the, with the United States in the Civil War. This was more like an employer, and an employee, than it was the slavery that we think of. But he still says, as an employee, subject yourselves, submit yourselves to the one that is leading you. And then in marriage, husbands and wives. As if to say, all areas of your life, Peter, all, to all these churches, all these areas of your life, as you work, as you're a citizen, in your relationships, submit to those that God has placed in your life as, as leaders. And so we, we have to spend some time thinking about this. We, we have to really, this is so relevant, it's just so interesting, right, we've, we've this is very relevant when we 're talking about submitting ourselves to the government, that kind of resonates maybe a good way or maybe not a good way okay this in, in today over the last couple of years we 've seen how challenging this can be, but we've got we 've really got to think about this because Peter just said this has eternal implications like this, if we church, we have to get this right, we have to get this right because other people's eternal destinies hinge on how we react to this conduct that Peter is laying down for us. And so we've got to really think about what what does this mean for us today? And I know this is a tense, a tense topic, but it is good, it is good to let the Word of God shape us as we think about how are we to live today. And so we want to do some some pretty basic Bible study here with 1 Peter. And so here's what I want to do: I want to look at the context. Okay, when Peter says, submit yourselves to the emperor, submit, submit yourselves to all governing authorities in your life. We first have to ask, what did this mean for Peter and the five churches he was writing to? And then when we start to kind of see the historical context for Peter, when we when we apply the Bible to our lives, we have to say, what principles? Because We're not in Rome today. What principles from this verse can we take from this passage in Peter and then apply it to us today as American citizens? But then when we do that, I want to step back and say, okay, we don't want to create a whole theology of being a citizen and submitting just from 10 verses in 1 Peter 2. We want to kind of get a broader theology from all of God's word that teaches us how we are to submit to those in leadership over our lives. So, you tracking with me? Head shake, nods? Okay, not good. Let's talk about the context of 1 Peter. Okay, he's writing to five churches 50 years after Jesus has has already been crucified and risen from the grave. Okay, um, Nero would have been the emperor of Rome. Pretty crazy, Nero when he became the emperor, sixteen years old. That's just wild to me. And after his first ten his first ten years of leadership at Rome, it was pretty quiet, pretty uneventful, but then there was a a massive fire. It's called the Great Fire of Rome. And it was so big that it swallowed entire districts of Rome. 14 different districts were completely devastated because of this fire. And we we have a historian who wasn't a Christian. His name was Tacitus. So he wasn't partial to believers, but he just wrote the history of Rome. And so it's really interesting to see what he wrote concerning this fire. And so what he wrote was he... He started to see how Nero was being blamed for the fire, but to kind of deflect from this blame, he started to focus on Christians. Here's what he says. To get rid of the report that he had started the fire, that's Nero, he fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class he hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. So, So Nero is deflecting. People are pointing fingers, and we do think he's the one that started the fire. They started to kind of figure this out, and to deflect, he started to blame what the populace would call as Christians. And so Tacitus goes on to describe what Nero does to these Christians. Covered with the skins of beasts, Christians were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or they were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired okay it's persecution nero is is getting uneasy with the blame and so he starts to torture christians he's literally lighting them on fire for illumination at garden parties at night that is what he's doing and so this this is the context of first peter now we don't know exactly when first peter was written but we believe that it was probably written right before the great fire. But I don't think that changes what Peter is saying. He's saying, are you being persecuted by Nero? I mean, are you, are you being fed and hurt and are you being disrespected? What, what, is, what is Peter saying? Honor the emperor. Submit and serve and obey to the best that you can. And verse 16 of this passage that we've been reading tells us how they're supposed to do this. Live as free servants. Okay, that, that's the key. If you want to submit to the government, to the, the emperor, he says, how do you do it? Live as free servants servants. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's an oxymoron. How can you be free and a servant at the same time? It doesn't make sense. But Peter is saying, what do you mean? You are free. Do you not remember the cornerstone? You've been washed in the mercy of God. You are free from the punishment and the condemnation of your sin. You have experienced forgiveness and life. You today are free. And because you are free, I mean, that is the greatest freedom you can experience, spiritual freedom between you and God. And because of that, serve, submit, because you can, because that freedom that you have in Christ supersedes all the other areas of your life. And I know sometimes we hear, or sometimes I've heard over the last couple of years, well, this passage is telling us that we are only to, to follow the government in verse first, first 14 when they punish those who do evil and they praise who, those who do good. We only, we only follow governments that are good to those who are good and they are bad to those who are bad. But again, if we think about what's the context of First Peter, I, I just don't think that floats Peter is writing to to Christians who are underneath Nero, telling him, you you will suffer. Submit and obey, honor and respect. And then he tells the the, the servant, he very clearly tells the servant, "Is, is your master unjust? Follow your master. Serve your master. Honor him. And so for us, okay, I think, It's it's not that complex. It's a command that Peter gives. The context is pretty clear, but for us, what principle can we take? We don't live in Rome. Nero's not our emperor. And again, it's not, I don't think it's hard to discover the principle. It's a lot harder to follow the principle. Not an emperor, but we have a president and we have a governor. We are to honor and to respect, to serve, and to obey our president. Even if, even if, just like Nero, doesn't follow the teachings of this book and of Jesus Christ, I think the principle in First Peter was pretty clear, and I think it's a pretty clear application for us today. Romans 12. What does it tell us about Honor. Love one another. Love the president. I know that's hard. It can be hard. Submit, serve, respect, and honor. And I say this, I've said this a lot the last couple years. I think if this were true for for the believers living with Nero in Rome, um, it's certainly true for us today. We, We don't know persecution. I mean, we don't know. We, we can hardly say, I can hardly say the word persecution today because, because compared to what these believers were faced with under Nero is nothing compared to what we face today. And I'm not saying we can't get there or that we aren't facing some types of persecution. But what I'm saying is if this passage, 1 Peter, was true for these believers, how can it not be true for us today in a much less hostile environment? But, but here it is hard. Like, I'm not, I'm sympathizing in that. It it goes against how we feel. I don't like submission. I, I struggle with it. We don't like authority. We don't like being told what to do, especially if we have a difference of values between the person that's telling us what to do. But, Peter makes it clear. I like verse 15. Verse 15 was for all of us today, for those who struggle, for this is the will of God. I love that. This is the will of God. We talk about the will of God. What does he want us to do? Does he go here, meet this person, date this person, go to this college? What's God's will? We, we'd never know. What is, just pray that I would know God's will. And it can be Hard to grasp sometime what the, what the will of God is. And I love Peter. He's like, let me tell you what God's will is. Submit to those in leadership in your life. It's like, this is what God's saying. This is what I want. So don't email me. If you're struggling with this. You don't like this. If you don't want to follow this, this. This is not my idea. This is the will of God. Of God. And and, you know, we talk when we talk about the this book right here. I think we would all be able to say, at least some doctrine of this book that we say we believe, we believe it's inerrant, right? There's no mistakes. This comes from God. Every word of God that comes from the mouth of God proves to be true. Okay, we would say it's inspired. That means it's breathed out by Him, that He led the prophets to give us exactly what He wants us to have in this book. So we say God's word is inspired. We say God's word is inerrant. You've heard this. We talk about this. We believe this. But what sometimes is left out is the implication of those two doctrines. This is another doctrine. We say the word of God is therefore, because it's inspired, because it's inerrant, God's word is also authoritative. If this really is the word of God, we will submit and we will let it lead us and change us because it is from God. And so what we do here, what we're saying is is that we will read this book and we will follow this book. Even when something like this message today, this passage today, it is hard. It goes against what we maybe want to do or what our culture tells us to do. But yet we say, though it's not natural, And though it's not what I want to do, God's word is authoritative. And so perhaps you're a little uncomfortable. Maybe you're angry. You're uneasy. Let's take a step back, take a breath. That's good. Now I want to say, okay, this is 1 Peter. I mean, 1 Peter is clear, and I think it's really healthy to study just 1 Peter and what does God's word say to us from 1 Peter. Yet, I do think it's important also to step back and say, okay, Let's get a theology of this. What does the rest of Scripture teach us as our role of citizens? Okay, so that's what I want to do. Um, Here's a statement. I'll put it on the screen, and then I'll kind of explain it here. We're running out of time really quickly. While there are clear commands to submit to the governing authorities, 1 Peter, Romans 13 is another, There are also examples of God honoring disobedience, protest, and willful refusal. Determining when to do one or the other requires biblical wisdom. Okay, so let me give you some examples from Scripture. Since this is guiding how we are as citizens, here are some examples of in scripture of what we would call civil disobedience or not doing what the government tells us to do. Famously, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, when they didn't listen to Pharaoh to kill all-male Jewish babies. Rahab was another example in the Old Testament. King Jericho says, give up the Israelite spies. She does not do that. She disobeys his command. Another great example, Obadiah with Queen Jezebel. She is killing all the prophets of God, and he is, he is told to give all the prophets to Jezebel. But what does Obadiah do? He takes 100 of these prophets. He goes against what the queen tells him, hides them in a cave so that he can save their lives. Jesus did this. okay? When, when he was slapped illegally in John 18, as he starts to kind of walk to the cross, when he was slapped illegally, John 18, what does he do? He confronts the official that slaps him. Or in Luke 13, Jesus called Herod a fox. And that was not a real warm and fuzzy thing to say. In Acts 16, when Paul was thrown thrown into prison, but he's a Roman citizen. And so they're breaking the law by how they're treating Paul. And Paul tells them, like, I am a Roman citizen. He protests. He says, you can't treat me like this. In Acts 9, Paul sneaks out the window. They're out to get him. They're out to arrest him. They're out to kill him. And he runs away. He sneaks out the window to avoid arrest. And so here's the principle. There's a time to submit to the government. We've talked about that. There's also a time not to submit. And choosing which path to take, we have to be biblically wise. Okay, so some, and we're not, we can't, we got to move on. We're almost out of time. Um, Questions like, are you commanded to sin? That's obviously the, the most clearest time where it doesn't take a lot of wisdom. If you're being commanded to sin, that, that it is a time for civil disobedience. But another question: Are you experiencing wild injustice or overreach from the government? Is the government interference? Is the government interfering with God's call to the church? Okay, it takes wisdom to decide when and how and what civil disobedience looks like, and whether or not it makes sense as the church to go after civil di- disobedience one way or the other. One example of this is the, the Chinese church with communism. You, you look at the persecution in China, and you look at all the rules and all the laws that go against Christianity. There's there's laws about zoning and buildings and going... like building things for churches, they're not allowed to do it. And I would say, that is not right. That is against the freedom of God's people to meet. And and the Chinese church has every right, I would say every right to say, the government tells us that we can't build and we can't meet in these large groups and we are disobeying and we are building anyways or we are meeting anyways. But guess what? In wisdom, the Chinese church Decides not to do that. They could scripturally say, we're building this anyways, we're gathering in large largest groups as we want to because the government can't tell us what to do as the church. They could do that. But the Chinese Christians say, you know what? We're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to meet in house churches because it's not worth it. For the gospel, we want to meet in smaller groups. Now, house churches are now illegal as well But it's a different type of civil disobedience where they're saying with wisdom, we are weighing our choices because we want the gospel to go out one way or another. So let's just wrap this up back with 1 Peter 2. A lot more that can be said. I'll just say this as I wrap that up. I was looking through some of my old emails the last two and a half years with COVID. What a fun situation to go back and revisit I kind of have forgotten all the fun we had, all the emails that I sent. I sent 20 emails about we're going to go outside or we're coming inside or we're gonna have masks or no masks and this many services or this large of group. And it's like, oh, wow. But I will say this, as I was writing this sermon, going back and kind of using some hindsight on how the others made decisions, it was pretty clear all throughout all the decisions we made and we're not perfect leaders, but our heart was, Can we follow the government, 1 Peter 2, and also follow Jesus, meeting together as the church? Can we do both of those? Because both matter. It is important for us to follow the government the best we can, if we can, if we can do that and still meet as the church and still proclaim Jesus and the elders from the very beginning have said, if we can, let's do both. And so that's been our hope uh, again, we, we're not, we, we've made mistakes, we're not perfect, uh, but it can be a challenging thing. And this is where I say we use wisdom. It's not a black and white. That's why churches do things differently. No, no two churches did things exactly the same way because it's not clear in Scripture how we're to handle this current situation. So we're using wisdom about following Jesus, being an example to our community. Uh, so that their eternal destinies might be changed through our submission to the government, yet also our call to be the church and who we are to be as the church. Wow, that was longer than I wanted, but let's close with this. The most important part, who is our conductor? Verses 21 through 25. If you've ever been to a symphony concert, it's a really I think it's an awesome thing to do. The guy in the middle with the baton, I remember going to a concert thinking, what's that guy doing? Like, do they really need that guy? It feels like they're making all this wonderful music and the guy's just waving a stick around. Well, I've learned, I'm learning things. Sorry if I've offended you. I really do apologize. Um, I've learned that those, those guys in the middle are really important, that they are the leaders, And they've actually done a study where they attached a light to his baton and they followed the bow of the violinist. And what they were able to track was that his movement and his speed and his direction was actually leading the music. And so they put two conductors up there, one, like me, who knows nothing, and the music was not, it was not good versus or compared to a a really proficient conductor and the music was beautiful. And so who is our leader it is jesus christ and peter doesn't mess around with this connection i mean he goes straight there in verse 21 for this you have been called because christ suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps i mean wow that that's the verse to underline that's the verse to take away to be thinking about Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That we suffer like Jesus suffered on Friday, Good Friday. You know, Jesus had six interrogations on Friday. Started at 2 a.m. When he was dragged to the high priest, the former high priest, and questioned and beaten. Then about three or four in the morning, he was dragged to Caiaphas. Then he was dragged again to the Sanhedrin at 6 a.m., then he was dragged to Pilate, then he was dragged to Herod, then he was dragged back to Pilate, and through each stop, each step of the way, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was, he was told all these things about him, and Jesus, in some of, the, in some of these interrogations, or they call them trials, he, sometimes he answered firmly, he stood up for himself, other trials, he was silent, and he took the beating. But Peter makes it pretty clear, Jesus is our example. While we suffer, while we submit, while we follow, Jesus didn't sin. He didn't ridicule. He wasn't deceitful. And so for us today, this week, next year, he is our example. Because again, our conduct reflects Jesus. That's what we want. We want our response to The government and to any authority in our life, we want it to reflect Jesus's response to the government in his life. And so church, may that be us. As we balance with wisdom when and how to do what, may we be a church that that when it comes down to it, we submit, we honor, we serve, and we respect. Let's pray. Father, it's a hard passage, and I pray that you would work in our own lives individually where we don't like submission, and we don't like service, and we don't like honoring and respecting God. I pray that you'd convict us with this passage in verse Peter, that we're called to do that even when it's hard and even when it's not owed. But, but, God, but God, because we know you have authority over all authority that we can have that perspective. And so help us, humble us, teach us. May our conduct, not just how we submit and serve, but all of our conduct this week, God, I pray that it would share your truth about who you are, that it would showcase your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that as we sing and as we spend some time in prayer, God, I pray that you would convict us where our conduct doesn't showcase Jesus. Because that's what we're called to do, and I pray that you help us as we do that. In your name we pray. Amen.